You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, if everyone wants to start to head back to their seats, be great. I think it's exactly 3.31, so I feel like maybe we should do the skull chant. I'm sure they're like doing it in this stadium right now. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 is where we're going to be. So Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. We don't have our pew Bibles here today, so sorry, the page number is not going to help you, but if you have a Bible, Luke 7, 36 or 50. Uh, the culture we live in today is continuing, even just increasingly more to be defined in opposition to our faith in Jesus. And I make that statement not to like create fear in us or to give us a defensive posture. That's not the intent, but we should name our reality because it's the world that we live in. And sociologist Philip Reif, he organized Western history into three different phases, and these are helpful for us to understand the culture we live in. We can think of them in these ways. First would be a pre-Christian world in which people were enchanted with many gods, and people would have called that kind of like a pagan time in which society was not necessarily constructed in relationship to a monotheistic God, but many gods, many spirits. Then came along like a Christianized West, in which we lived with one God dominated by Christian influences. This was the West for the last 1,500 years or more. And then increasingly more, we moved into this third phase called the post-Christian West, in which our culture lives in opposition to the sacred, and in fact, intentionally severing ties between the social and the sacred. And this is why it matters for us to understand this uh, today in, in kind of the culture that we live in, because as this started to emerge, Christian leaders uh, started to see the erosion of Christianity really in the middle of the 20th century, and they thought that we were going back to a pre-Christian world. And so they tried to adopt missionary strategies similar to that working in a pre-Christian culture. However, rather than, than living in the culture that didn't get Jesus, that didn't understand who Jesus was yet, we were actually living in a culture that had defined itself in opposition to Jesus and faith in him. And those are two very different worlds. So for a while, the goal of the church, or as many churches started to kind of think about, is just to become more relevant 
And what ended up happening is that malformed Christians were being sent out into the world to evangelize the culture and were being evangelized back in return. And this is an exhausting and a wearisome world to live in. It can be discouraging. It can be confusing. And so we're left asking ourselves, how, what does it look like for us to live as faithful followers of Jesus in this world, in this time? And the goal of the rest of our series together, in many ways, is going to answer that question. Uh, the, the series that we've been in has been called Tired of Being Tired, Embracing the Rhythms of Jesus in an Age of Distraction. And we started in the fall talking about the personal rhythms of Jesus, Bible reading and prayer and fasting and Sabbath. Um, but if we're also going to have outward rhythms, which we should, this is what it means to follow Jesus, then we need to make sure those personal rhythms are in order. So we're, that's where we started, because malformed people cannot withstand the massive cultural influence that we live in. So following Jesus will require us to think outside of ourselves as well. We cannot just separate ourselves or live in isolate, isolation as individuals. And so we're asking, how do we do that well? How do we live with public and relational rhythms as a follower of Jesus, especially in this cultural moment? And so today we're going to take a look at a practice in the life of Jesus that I think will help us. And it's called hospitality. This is one of the very simple ways that we can live as faithful Jesus followers in the 21st century. Now, narrowly defined, hospitality is really primarily about table fellowship. But also, I think, more broadly defined, fellowship, or hospitality is about living a life of welcome. And in fact, when I think about the message of the sermon, what I want us to capture today is, and this is a bit of a definition of hospitality for us, is that it's about becoming the tangible welcome of Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life. There's a fairly specific application in biblical times uh, for hospitality, in particular when a traveler or a stranger would come to town or someone was in need, then we would, people would welcome them into their home and provide for those needs. And in fact, the word for hospitality in the New Testament is a compound word of two different words, uh, philos, which means friend, and xenos, which means stranger. So hospitality was a combination of those two words, friend and stranger. And you might think about it this way, welcoming a stranger as a friend. And throughout his life, really, Jesus, he expands the scope of hospitality from just being about table fellowship, but also just about welcoming strangers as friends. What, what a better way to show the tangible love of Jesus than to be the sort of people who welcome the outsider as a friend who makes space and welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. And so our outline for today, uh, we're going to go through the narrative here in Luke, and we're going to look at hospitality in that narrative. So I'm not going to read it all at once. We're going to work our way through it together slowly, and then we're going to just apply it. We're going to talk about hospitality in our lives and what that looks like, and specifically four ways that hospitality can be expressed. So before we jump into Luke, let me pray for us, and then we'll take a look at the passage. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. I pray that you'd help us. I ask for the help of your spirit to open our eyes, that we behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you found Luke 7, 36 through 50, that's where we'll be. We'll start in verse 36, where it says that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And we're going to find out soon that this Pharisee's name is Simon, who invited Jesus to come and eat with him. And as I mentioned earlier, there was this practice of hospitality where you'd invite the stranger, the traveler, into your home. Jesus was from outside the town. Simon is following this practice, inviting him into his 
house. And, and it was actually probably more than just that because Jesus was also a traveling teacher. And when teachers came to town, then people wanted to invite them into their home. Jesus was probably out teaching that day, maybe at the synagogue or somewhere else in town. And so Simon invites him back to his house. This would be good for his status in the city. This would be good for his neighbors to come and hear what Jesus had to say about the basic to kind of the, the hot topics of the day. They'd quiz him and they'd ask him questions. And this is what they do with traveling teachers. So Simon invites Jesus over. And then we kind of get a, a switch in the story that we don't expect. It says, behold, verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And continues to describe what she does there to Jesus. And what we see is Jesus is reclining at the table, which means that he's sitting down with his feet kind of, he's on the ground, not at chairs like we're sitting in, but he's on the ground, feet out kind of behind him to the side. And a woman of the city enters, and it says that she was a sinner. And we realize as this goes on, she's a known sinner. She's a notorious sinner. They knew that she was, this, this wasn't just like ceremonially unclean type of sin. This was like moral sin that people knew about. And some kind of conjecture that she was a prostitute, but we actually don't know that. It doesn't say that anywhere. We don't know that for sure. And in fact, I actually think for the sake of the story, it, it actually, we don't need to know that. Because regardless of the nature of our rebellion and our sin against God, we can all identify with the woman in this story. For me, I struggle with a sin of pride. Some of you maybe struggle with a sin of anger. Others with a sin of lust. It, whatever that sin is, we can identify with her in this story. We all need Jesus. And Luke describes then how she honors Jesus in verse 38. There are four actions listed, each in quick succession. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, one, she began to wet his feet with her tears, two, she wiped them with her, the hair of her head, and three, she kissed his feet and anointed, or, and then four, anointed them with the ointment. Now, we don't know if she's crying tears of gratitude or if she's crying tears of regret. Um, I'd imagine a combination of both. If you have ever had a profound experience of grace then you know the mixture of those emotions, the grief at our sin and also the immense gratitude at the grace that God has shown us. And so she cries these tears onto his feet and, and eventually that moisture begins to mix with whatever was on his feet and so she then wipes them with her hair. And his feet were very dirty, okay? Jesus isn't walking around in sneakers. He probably doesn't have keen hiking boots, right? He's got like sandals. He's walking on dirty roads that are traveled by many people and animals all leaving their waste behind them. He gets in the home. His feet are dirty. And we find out later, Simon didn't offer him water to wash his feet. And so they're still very dirty. And if you've ever had hands, maybe that were dirty or dusty, and you begin to mix them with something that's a little bit wet, then that dust and that dirt kind of becomes paste-like and it starts to smear a little bit. And I don't know where in the process the ointment gets applied, but I can imagine that this was a bit messy. And, and she responds with this incredible humility and this expression of love toward Jesus. Rather than leave his feet muddy, she, she was so concerned to leave his feet in that status that she was willing to let her hair get caked with mud to wash them off. Now, when the Pharisee, it says in verse 39, who had invited Jesus, this is Simon, saw this, he said to himself, 
if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, there are certain assumptions underneath this way of thinking from him. He assumes that if Jesus is, in fact, a prophet, then one, he would know that she's a notorious sinner. And second, if he knew that she was a notorious sinner, then he would not let her touch his feet in that way. So at this time, table fellowship was really, it played a significant part of life among first century Palestine. And it's important for us today, we still sharing a meal, sharing good drinks, like we, that's still important to our way of relating to one another, but just infinitely more at this time in the culture that Jesus is in. Tables were a place of incredible unity to express your desire for fellowship with someone else, but it was also a place of separation. If you were invited to someone's table, if you were invited to their home, it meant that they were willing to associate with you, that they wanted to have relationship with you. And the opposite was just as true. If you were excluded from someone's table, then it meant someone did not want to have that kind of relationship with you. And sinners were not welcome at the table of a good Jew in this day. Neither were people who were sick. Neither were people who were poor. There was a clear caste system that existed, and tables were one of the ways that you knew which level of society that you existed within. However, Jesus did not see tables the same way. That's not the way he lived his life or his ministry. They were not a means of division. He welcomed people to the table that others would refuse. And for that, as it says in verse 34, just before our passage today, Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, and as we see in this story, he also ate with Pharisees. Today, we might have different categories. It might not be tax collectors and sinners on the one hand and Pharisees on the other. It might be for us more like white nationalists on the one hand and someone who runs an abortion clinic on the other. What if you knew that Jesus was coming over to your house for dinner But before he got to your house, on his way, he had to stop by the house of a known white nationalist in your neighborhood. Or what if the night before you knew that he had shared a meal with the person who runs the local Planned Parenthood clinic? Would you want him at your house at that point? And I think the way that we answer that question, what it does in our heart, tells us a lot about where we draw lines in our current cultural moment. The only people excluded from Jesus' table are those who excluded themselves because they didn't like who else was welcome there. And in verse 40, Jesus answers Simon. He knows what he's thinking, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon responds, say it, teacher. And so then Jesus tells a story, right? I love that about Jesus. He's always got a story to help illustrate the point that he's going to make. And this parable then becomes a lens through which Jesus sees what's happening before him. He begins in verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. This is important for us. Debt at this point is, was often a word used for sin and the consequence of sin, and the analogy there would be obvious to everyone in the room. And Jesus is telling a story. He's talking about people who have debt. This would be obvious to the people in the room. He goes on, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he has canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. One owed a great debt, the other a much smaller one. 
Today would be the equivalent of about two months of wages versus 18 months of wages. The one who had been forgiven the greater debt, as Simon rightly answers, would love the master more. And then Jesus applies the parable to the situation that's happening before him. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus here, he begins to use this repeated formula. You did not, but she did. Three times he references this in reference to washing feet, greeting with a kiss, and anointing with oil. Each of these would be very practical ways that a host would welcome their guest. Now, none of them were absolutely required, but also in this case, none of them were given by Simon to Jesus. Simon may have been the host in the story, but the woman is the one who shows hospitality to Jesus. The assessment from Jesus in verse 47 indicates that her sins were not forgiven because she loved much, but she loved much and displayed it through her washing his feet because she had been forgiven much. The one who is forgiven much loves much, and the one who is forgiven little loves little. And I'll just share, I mean, for me, this has been personally convicting for me. This isn't my notes, but I just, I have been convicted about my own lack of love for Jesus because I don't see my need for forgiveness enough. I don't want to be like Simon. I want to be like the woman who loves much because she knows she's been forgiven much. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that Simon was not in need of much forgiveness, right? But he had misunderstood his need. His status and his self-righteous, they had become a hindrance to the gospel in his life because he did not see his need for Jesus. And so then Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is not forgiving her because she displayed her love for him in these acts of humility. He's declaring her sins are forgiven because of her faith. And the love that she showed him is an expression of that faith. So Jesus here is speaking into reality what is true already in her heart. Now, as we end this story, I want to unravel a little bit of it as it, as it applies to hospitality here for us in the 21st century. Simon is the one who would be expected to show hospitality in the story, but it's actually the woman who gives it in far more tangible and practical ways toward Jesus because she knew her need. And as a result, she had the humility to serve him, and she was motivated by her love toward the one who had extended such profound grace to her to humble herself and serve. Hospitality itself is not the main point of the story. Our response to Jesus' forgiveness is the main point, but we can learn a lot about hospitality, this ancient art of hospitality and how we live as kingdom people right here in the 21st century as people who have been forgiven much and therefore love much. And so I want to share with you four different ways that gospel hospitality differs from cultural hospitality. The first is that it is all of life, 
not just when you're hosting someone. So think about this. Jesus displays hospitality, and he never owned a home. In the story, the woman shows hospitality, and she's not the one who owns the home. Simon is. So even though hosting is a primary expression of hospitality, Jesus gives us examples of how hospitality is a way of life and all of life. I said earlier that the definition of hospitality for us is becoming the tangible welcome of Jesus in all of life. And we welcome others because Christ has welcomed us. In Romans 15, 7, we get this exhortation from Paul where he says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Hospitality is expressed by becoming people of gospel welcome in all of life. And whether it is someone that's waiting in the waiting room beside you and the way that you interact with them, the way that you engage with your neighbors, or the way that you welcome people into your home, we all are forced to ask ourselves, do we live a life of gospel welcome? And let me give you just two very practical ways that you can think about doing this in the coming weeks. The first is to share a meal with someone and take the initiative to do so. So you initiate. Maybe invite them into your home if you have a home. If you don't, then just ask to go meet for a meal somewhere. But take the initiative to share a meal with someone in the coming weeks. A second very practical step is to meet someone new here at River City Church. Proactively meet people here. Right? We, we want to welcome people into our lives, whether it's someone who it's their first Sunday here or it's someone that you just don't know very well. Take the initiative, introduce yourself, welcome people into your life and into our church family. And as we move toward this public launch date of March 5th, then we're, we're going to see a growing number of guests join us on our Sunday mornings, and it will be a wonderful opportunity for us to welcome people. Beginning on September 30th, I have it in my prayer journal, I began to pray this very specific prayer for us. So this is even before we got into our soft launch. And this is, the, this is the phrase I've been praying, that River City Church would be marked by gospel-drenched hospitality. I'm praying that for us, that we would be marked by gospel-drenched hospitality. Cultural hospitality confines it just to hosting people for a meal. Gospel hospitality is displayed in all of life as a way of life, so let us be people of welcome. Okay, the second way this applies is it's, this, it takes practical steps and not just good ideas. So in this story, this woman does practical things that display her love for Jesus, things that Simon, as the host, had neglected to do. Right? The practical things are not necessarily the most important part about hospitality, but hospitality is not hospitality without them. We do have to do practical things to help people feel welcome. It is shown in the practical steps that we take, whether it be in taking initiative or the way that we welcome people into our lives. See, everyone is waiting for someone else to invite them over for a meal. Everyone wants to meet someone else and wants them to introduce themselves to you. But if everyone is waiting for someone else to do it, then no one is doing it. Studies show that people have report feeling more lonely than they've ever felt. People long for meaningful relationships. And one very practical step that we can take is to be the one who takes the initiative. I have a friend who is always taking initiative in his relationships. He's really good at it. He's known for it. And recently I asked him to go camping with me, and I took the time to plan it all. I got the campsite, brought the gear, planned the meals, and he just said to me afterward, that one of the most meaningful things about our 24 hours together was just that I took the initiative. 
that he felt remarkably loved by me expressing my desire for relationship in that way. And then after you initiate, there's all these practical steps you can take to help someone feel welcome in relationship with you. If you're bringing them to your house, then greet them at the door. Shake their hand. Give them a hug. Right? We don't kiss each other on the cheek or anything like Jesus. Right? He didn't, Jesus didn't get greeted with a kiss. We don't do that. But you can shake a hand. If you feel comfortable enough, give a hug. I see Ben laughing. Maybe he greets people with a kiss at his house. I don't know. <laughs> Josh does? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Offer them something to drink. Give them a clean place to sit, right? Make it clear that you want them there, that you planned for them. And if you're bad at conversations and don't know how to have good conversations, then learn. This can be a learned skill. Work on it. You can get better. I, have a, I, I know someone who felt really awkward in conversations. So they read Deborah Fine's book, The Fine Art of Small Talk, so that they could be a more welcoming person in their lives. So here's what I'm getting at. General hosp- or gospel hospitality will require us to take some practical steps. So do some research. Google, how can I be a more hospitable person? I don't know. How can I be better at conversation? We have all these resources. Learn how to be better at it. It's not enough to simply think of hospitality as a good idea, but we need to actually act. Okay, third, relational access and not just entertainment. Gospel hospitality requires relational access and not just entertainment. Hospitality is sold to us by advertisers as just being good at entertaining people, in which we give access to just certain parts of our home. We're very calculated about where everything is staged when people come in. In many ways, we're just performing for our guests. We're putting on a show. We're hoping that they feel entertained. And so we buy the newest hearth and hand serving dish, right? Thank you, Joanna Gaines and Target. We get our house cleaner than it's been in months, The people who live in our home with us suffer under the orders barked at them by the dictator that just showed up to make sure the house is ready for guests. Because cultural hospitality is so often about appearance and status and entertainment. This is what we see in the life of Simon. I think this is what Simon's after as a host. He had won the day by having the traveling teacher in his home so that he and his guests could ask them questions. Jesus was going to be the entertainment for him and his guests. That's what he had in mind. And then, of course, it all got interrupted. Jesus interrupts our plans so often, right? Meanwhile, Jesus displays hospitality by giving relational access. The table was a place of unity and not a separation. So he welcomed the woman into the room. He defended her actions when they were questioned by Simon and his friends. Gospel hospitality is about giving relational access, not providing entertainment, which means we slow down when we're with people enough to ask good questions, We let people see the warts of our homes. Maybe they help us with some of the meal prep or the dinner cleanup. It means that we are not as concerned about the centerpiece on our table as we are about keeping the welcome of Jesus at the center of the night. And fourth, gospel hospitality means that it reconciles enemies and not just friends. Gospel hospitality is something that will at times make us uncomfortable. Jesus had a great way of making insiders uncomfortable and outsiders feel welcome. And in the case of Simon, the hospitality of Jesus certainly made his host and his guests feel uncomfortable. People who otherwise might feel ashamed feel welcome. Those who maybe feel secure in, their, in themselves and their privilege often can be made uncomfortable. And we're forced to ask ourselves, are we doing hospitality like Jesus? Does the gospel in this way in our lives tear down walls 
or does it erect them? Surveys show that one important factor for people when they attend a new church is whether or not they feel welcome. There are a lot of reasons that people won't always feel welcome. It can be easy to feel like an outsider, to feel like someone doesn't belong. And those are some hurdles that it's hard to just overcome those. But we can either reinforce that message or we can take intentional steps to be hospitable to the guests among us. I came across a Reddit stream recently, and the title of it was, I don't feel welcome at church. And the woman began to describe moving to a small town. There was only one church in town that she could attend, and it wasn't a welcoming one. She said that her family did not feel accepted. They did not feel loved. They felt tolerated at best. And they couldn't move away for several reasons, so they were stuck in this town. This is the church they attended. And she said that her older daughters won't even attend a church anymore because of their experience growing up in this particular church. And unfortunately, churches can be one of the most difficult places for people like the woman in this story to show up to. We're meant to create an environment where people can experience the tangible welcome of Jesus. And instead, so often what gets created is an environment that feels more like Simon's house did for the woman in the story. And so we should ask ourselves, I asked you earlier to ask just personally, do you live a life of welcome? As a church, does our church feel like the welcome of Jesus? Or are we offering the welcome of Simon? Is it a place that tears down barriers and builds bridges, or do we erect barriers and unintentionally keep people out? And it isn't just that church can be guilty of this, right? We, we live in a culture right now that is combative, and we see it in the rise of what's become known as cancel culture. Hospitality is a great way to fight that. If you're not familiar with the term, cancel culture is when a person or an organization loses public support, it gets canceled by the masses, usually for something that others have deemed unacceptable. And some will argue, some do argue, that this is just our culture's way of holding people accountable for their actions. While others will say that it is mean-spirited at times, and it's taken just toward people that disagree with you. So we do need ways of holding public figures accountable, right? But many feel that cancel culture has just gotten out of control, that people are getting canceled for things that really require more conversation and dialogue. And here's my guess. If we were to ask Simon about his experience, he would probably argue that shaming this sinful woman is just his way of holding her accountable. And so it's both religious and cultural elites. It's also the mass cancel culture. They're all on the side of Simon here. Cultural hospitality welcomes people who think like us, look like us, dress like us, and vote like us. But gospel hospitality will welcome all people with the tangible love of Christ. It breaks down walls. It doesn't erect them. Cultural hospitality will ask who I can invite to help make me grow on the social ladder. Gospel hospitality will ask the opposite question. It's willing to reach back down the social ladder. In fact, gospel hospitality might even cost you some social capital with those around you. It did for Jesus at times. His willingness to associate with tax collectors and sinners, to welcome this woman into the home of Simon, even us at great cost to himself, Jesus shows hospitality to all people, and at the cost of his life, he welcomed us into his kingdom. Gospel hospitality is not concerned with increasing our social status and capital. It is concerned with asking how we can use the privilege we have in Christ to benefit others. Hospitality is about becoming the tangible welcome of Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life. 
And in a culture that has defined itself in opposition to our faith, hospitality is one of the best ways for us to live today. In 1 Peter 4, he says, the end of all things that is at hand, and then he gives this really simple instruction, two things, pray and show hospitality. One of the best ways we can live as kingdom people today is to live with gospel hospitality as a regular rhythm of our lives. And so River City Church, together, let's be the tangible welcome of Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.